Okay, how we doing tonight, everybody? Pretty good, good to see your faces. Uh, if anybody is inimitable, it would be Brett Davis. And that announcement segment was just fantastic, man. It was absolutely incredible. So A, a plus, A plus. Uh, so good to see you tonight. Those of you that don't know who I am, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, and I was on the staff here with New Life Friday night uh, from 2017 until last year. And then before that, uh, Mandy and I were church planters in Denver, and I've been good friends with Daniel Grothy for a lot of years now. And I was thinking when I was worshiping, I was thinking about all of the times that we would come down from Denver to worship with you all here in Colorado Springs. And um, I, there's just a unique spirit uh, at Friday night. I don't know what it is, but there's something that when I walk into this place, I just go, there's the, something in the atmosphere is different than anywhere else I've ever been. And I thought about all of those years that we would come down from Denver and all of the tears that I cried into the carpet over there during some really difficult times and how you all have kind of, you've just held it. I don't know what to say about that. Like, you know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about churches having lampstands. Like, your lampstand is just so unique and so beautiful. So thank you for that. And it's good to see you again. And it's good to be back with you here on Friday night. Uh, planted New Life East uh, last year, the seventh congregation of New Life Church. New Life East turns one year old this weekend. It's amazing. And through all of the ups and downs and the craziness of the past year, God has been so faithful to us. We have a robust and strong congregation that meets at Grand Peak Academy Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. And so if you're free Sunday morning, we'd love to see you. Join us uh, for our one-year birthday celebration. Our little baby church, it's a nice little, it's like getting into toddler land, you know, and it still poops in its diapers and stuff, but it's so cute. And we would really love to have you. Okay, I'm trying to think, do I need to say anything else preliminary? No, I don't. Okay, we are in the Everyday Prophets, looking at the 12 minor prophets uh, of Israel. So we had Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then what comes next? Ah, Jonah. Ah, I got you there, Jonah. And so, uh, but I'm not going to be preaching from Jonah tonight. And you say, Andrew, why? Why? Because we preached on Jonah four times last year. And so there are like 30 really good sermons on file at New Life Church for the book of Jonah. If you're interested, look them up. And it also means, Brad, I don't know if you know this, but we get a pass on preaching Jonah the next four times we go through a series on the Minor Prophets. It's amazing. So I'm just leaping right over Jonah. It's a great book and the whale and the whole thing. And you can read it on your own. But I'm going to be in Micah tonight. I'm going to be in Micah. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there, the book of Micah. Uh, Micah, just to give you a little bit of historical context, Micah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah right about the same time that Hosea and Amos were preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. So this is somewhere in the middle to the latter part of the 8th century B.C. And he was also a contemporary of Isaiah who was preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah at about the same time. In fact, when you look at the book of Micah and you start reading it through, what you notice is that there are some really interesting parallels to what Isaiah is doing in his own writing. You get the feeling almost, uh, some scholars have speculated that Micah was perhaps a disciple of Isaiah's. There is enough similarity to their thought there. So uh, we have Hosea and Amos in the north. We have Micah and uh, Isaiah in the south. And uh, Micah's name means something like, who is Yahweh? And so he has this beautiful vision, this glimpse of the identity of Yahweh that I think is quite profound, and I think that he's got a word for us tonight. So before we get into the text of Scripture, can we just pause our hearts, still our bodies, still our minds, come into alignment with God and his presence. Let's just be still for a moment. Take some deep breaths, family. Some of your week has just been, you've been moving so fast. This is the first chance you've gotten to really settle down and just breathe. Would you just, like God's not rushing us through this moment and he's not rushing you into the next moment. And I know that there's a lot of stuff in front of you that's heavy and scary and hard, but the Lord's not pushing you into that. He's holding you right here. He's meeting your every need right now. Psalm 23 is true for you right now. That the Lord is your shepherd and you, therefore you have no wants. 
And right now, he's making you lie down in green pastures. And right now, he's leading you beside quiet waters. And right now, he's restoring your soul. Right now, he's leading you in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Like, he's more interested in you walking in the right path than you are interested in discovering the right path. He's guiding you in it. He's preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He's anointing your head with oil. Your cup is running over. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear. He's with you. All of those things are true. And we claim that tonight, oh God. We claim all of those things as true. It's an old saint many hundreds of years ago, Julian of Norwich, who said that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well because we know God. God is carrying our lives and we trust that that is true. So tonight we're asking that you would help us see that. Tonight we are asking that you would help us touch the heart of God. Tonight we are asking that you would help us repent of foolishness. Tonight we're asking that you would help us leave hell behind and walk into heaven. Tonight we're asking that you'd help us embrace the kingdom. Tonight we're asking that you would melt us again at the feet of Jesus. That all of our hardness of heart would fall apart at his feet and that you'd make us soft again, tender again, humble again, like children again. Grant that we're praying. I'm asking that the words of my mouth tonight as the preacher and the meditation of our hearts together as hearers of the word would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Micah chapter one, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the vision that he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, hear you peoples, all of you, listen all the earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple, look, Micah says, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. This is like a Sinai type vision, okay? You remember when God revealed himself to the people of God up on the mountaintop, Exodus chapter 19, fire, trumpet blast, all that stuff. Well, that's kind of happening again here. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down the slope. So he's capitalizing on the Exodus memory, Sinai memory of God being up in the mountain, fire and storm clouds and all that. But the difference here is that God does not remain on the mountaintop with fire and storm clouds. But what happens? The presence of God starts moving down the mountain towards sin. All of this is happening because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel, which immediately raises the question, what were the sins of the people of Israel? What is it that's provoking this harsh reaction, this flooding of the divine presence down into this situation? What's bringing that about? And Micah gets into it in chapter 3, flip over there, starting in verse 8. Micah says, as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and with might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, Micah says, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. So he's talking to the leaders and to the rulers here at this point, that you are the ones who despise justice and you distort all of the things that are right. You build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. And even more than that, your leaders are judging for a bribe. So they're not judging with justice. They're judging because somebody paid them for a decision, right? They're warping justice in Israel. And her priests even teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Of course, we've never heard of that before. That's never happened in, the, in our history, right? You know, that somebody's paid the preacher on the side. Hey, can you? That's never happened. It's happening in Israel, Right? That these people are being bribed, they're being bought off, they're distorting justice, the word of the Lord is being distorted, and yet they look for the Lord's support and they say, is not the Lord among us, no disaster will come upon us. Therefore, Micah says, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. So the first big problem that Micah sees happening among the people of God is that the leaders, both the political leaders and the judicial leaders and the religious leaders, are all taking advantage of those that are less powerful than them. And this is distorting justice, it's distorting righteousness in Israel. Now this would be a big problem by itself, except that when Micah surveys the landscape of what's happening, 
he's seen that this pattern of people taking advantage of one another, the powerful taking advantage of the weak, that it's actually become endemic in the community. Now, we just went through a pandemic. That's when a sickness kind of goes all around the world. Endemic is when something happens among a group of people. And what's happened here is that a sickness has taken root among all of God's people. If you have Bibles, flip over to chapter 7. Look at what Micah says here. What misery, he says, is mine. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains, but everyone. Everybody say everyone. Everyone Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. Wait, so what has gone wrong among God's people? Well, everyone now is lying in wait to shed blood, and they hunt each other with nets, and both hands are skilled in doing evil, and the ruler demands gifts, and the judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Don't trust in, uh, what does the text say? A neighbor put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father, and a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the members of his own household. So not only are the leaders in Israel taking advantage of those less powerful than they are, the folks that they have been tasked to lead, but now that sickness has gone viral among God's people, and now everybody is taking advantage of everybody else. So much so that you can't even trust the people in your own household. Now, some of you have lived through seasons and situations like this, where relationships get so broken and so messed up that all of the trust evaporates out of the household. That's what had happened in all of Israel. Israel, I'll put it this way, Israel had become a predatory environment. And this is problematic for God because it defies the very reason for which God called them out of Egypt in the first place. This isn't a side issue. It's not like God is looking at this thing that's happening in Israel and going, well, this is just a little bit annoying. I wish everybody could kind of straighten out. It's actually directly contravening the very purpose for which God called his people in the first place. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord, Mount Horeb. And the Lord said to him, "I I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt... I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. God is concerned for people who are being bullied. He is. But his heart is moved by that. So that when the Israelites and their suffering and their oppression and their slavery begin lifting up their voices to God... It enters into his ear and it bothers his heart. So much so that God decides to rise up and come to their aid to help them. Like God is interested in breaking the power of oppressors in our world. Can I get an amen? And when he delivers his people up out of Egypt, what he's expecting out of them is that that very same care and tenderness that he shows for them, they will show and model for other people. Look at Exodus chapter 22. The Lord in articulating their responsibility for one another as his people, says this. Don't mistreat, this is verse 21 of Exodus 22. Don't mistreat or oppress a foreigner. Why? Because you were. You were foreigners in Egypt. Like, don't you remember what that felt like? Do you remember what it felt like when you were being beat up Do you remember what it felt like when you were being abused? Do you remember what it felt like when somebody was taking advantage of you? Do you remember what it felt like when your livelihood was being stripped from you? Do you remember what that felt like? Well, don't you now go around returning 
that favor, the favor of being oppressed on other people. Don't do that. You remember what that was like. Verse 22, don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. For if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry just like I what? Just like I heard your cry. That if somebody starts crying out to me because of what you are doing to them, I am going to hear their cry just like I heard your cry and my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. And if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, don't treat it like a business deal, the Lord says. Charge no interest, but if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to them by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else will they sleep in? And when they cry out to me, what does the Lord here say? I will hear for I am compassionate. Now, when you start reading the Old Testament, what you see is that this theme repeats itself over and over and over again. I was tender, I was kind, I was good to you. I despise oppression, I despise the mistreatment of other people, I broke the arm of Pharaoh. So if and when you ever decide to become a little Pharaoh to somebody else, <laughs> If and when you ever decide to take advantage of other people, what you will find is that that same goodness that broke the might of Pharaoh and delivered you up from Egypt, all of a sudden, now you will receive the brunt of that goodness as wrath against you. I'm going to treat you the same way that I treated Egypt. Are you tracking with me tonight? brothers and sisters, which is why the reaction of God to his people in Micah is so severe. God had delivered his people up out of Egypt so that they would become something different. And all of a sudden there is this sickness at work among God's people and they are becoming Egypt, which is why the Lord says, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with Thickets. The Lord is looking at his people and he's going, if you are determined to rebuild the oppression of Egypt inside this space, then the only thing that is left for me to do, like if you're going to treat each other the way that Pharaoh treated you, then the only thing that's left for me to do is to take your life and to smash it to pieces in order to drive that sickness out of you and then rebuild your life on righteousness. Here's what I want to say to you tonight, brothers and sisters. And this is what I think Micah is putting in front of us. That how we treat each other, and especially the most vulnerable among us, says everything about what we think God is really like and everything about what we think the world is therefore really like. It's the infallible litmus test of what you think about God, how you treat other people, and particularly how you treat the most vulnerable among you. It says everything about what you think God is really like. Do you think that God is a bully? Do you think that God is an angry dictator? Do you think that God looks like Pharaoh? You will probably treat people like that. How you treat people says everything about what you think that God is really like, which is why we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again, because it opens up for us a new vision of what God is, what God is really like. And what we know about God from the scriptures is that if God is anything, God is tender. Okay? God is tender. God is nothing like Pharaoh. God is nothing like the bully. He is nothing like the oppressor. God is tender. God is gracious, God is compassionate, God is soft-hearted. That's our God. And I was remembering this week as I was preparing this message, I was remembering when, my, um, when our oldest, Ethan, was born. We have four kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And uh, that first one, man, that hits you just like a Mack truck, doesn't it? You meet your baby for the first time. You know, Ethan, who's going to be 15 this summer, uh, it seems like it was yesterday that he was born, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the anticipation, Mandy pregnant for nine months, great pregnancy, and, and uh, I remember her beginning to go into labor, and so we went into the hospital on a Monday morning, and we were thinking that somewhere in the next few hours, we'll have an Ethan. And uh, as it turned out, Ethan was stubborn, 
And Ethan was not born until 8.45 p.m. Tuesday night. So it was about 36 hours later. Some of you women in the building here, you can relate to the travail and the agony of that. And, of course, you know, you can't eat that whole time. And Mandy, you know, by the end of this 36-hour period, she is exhausted. And so they gave Ethan to Mandy and she, you know, held Ethan for a couple minutes there. And then finally she went, I'm tired and I'm hungry. Take the baby away from me, you know. And I do feel like for 14 and a half years, that's kind of what you've been saying, actually, about the kids. Like, I'm tired and I'm hungry. Somebody take these children away. And that's why there are dads, you know, is that that's what we're there. Guys, get over here. Give your mom a break. But, you know, Ethan gets whisked away and the nurses take care of him and everything is peaceful in our room. And they wheel Ethan back in. And Mandy, at this point, is so exhausted. She just completely is conked out. You know, she's sleeping. And so I have my first moments with my son, my firstborn. For the first time, it was just me and him together. And I will never forget that. I, I will never forget holding him in the hospital room and the emotion that I started to feel. And I was not prepared for the strength of that emotion. I remember beginning, you know, you're, you're, holding, you're holding this little child that you've kind of seen at a distance, as it were, for nine months. You know, it's kind of this parasitic thing that's growing in your, you know, and there's a relationship there, but holding... The baby is so different, and I remember holding Ethan and looking at him and wanting to just say something, the preacher in me or something, you know, I just say something. And I remember starting to just talk to Ethan about his family, you know, telling him about the Arndt family and telling him about his grandma and grandpa who are here tonight and telling him about his mom and his dad and our family history and our story. And I just felt this emotion welling up in me. And as I'm telling him about our family history, I remember starting to tell him about all the things that we hoped for and we dreamed for his life, you know. You've got good things in front of you and da-da-da. And so I'm telling him about all of that. And then I remember starting to talk to him about the love of God. The God that Mandy and I have come to know. The God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who has infinite compassion and love and wisdom. The God who cares for him with this infinite care. And as I'm holding Ethan... And I'm telling him about God's care for him. The emotion just came up in me in such an enormous way. And I began to just weep over him. Just weep over him. And I'm holding, I, I, know, I have known this child for a couple of hours. And I remember the emotion was like, I would do anything for this child. You know, lay down on the tra- train tracks, take a grenade for this baby. Like, I'll do anything for this baby. And I'm sobbing over Ethan. And I remember wiping my tears away from my cheeks with my thumb. And I made the sign of the cross on his head, consecrated him to God with my own tears in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that, that emotion of tenderness, I had never felt that before in my life. And I have come to see that that is the way that God feels about all people all the time. Okay? That was like a, that was like a drop in the ocean of the tenderness and the compassion and the kindness that God feels about all of us all of the time. And I think that we experience it the most in those tender moments with little children, which is why Jesus capitalizes on just that relationship. In Matthew chapter 18, you know the text well. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, well, who that is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that what we do? We jockey for position. We try to figure out who's going to be the biggest in the best and the most powerful. And Jesus is like, you stupid idiots, you know? And so he called a little child to him and he placed the little child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is what? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Don't you see, like, we are all trying to ascend in life by accumulating power and accumulating money and becoming great, maybe and usually often at the expense of other people. And Jesus takes the whole thing, he turns it on its head. He's like, how have you forgotten the tenderness that's at the heart of the world? Don't you understand that it's the child who's the greatest among you? And, 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 and unless you change and become like the little children... You can never enter the kingdom of heaven and whoever welcomes one such child in my name, what? Welcomes me. That the way that we treat each other and particularly the most vulnerable among us says everything about whether or not or how and to what extent we welcome the presence of the Lord Jesus among us. Are you with me tonight? 
Tenderness, friends, is the heart of the world. George MacDonald said it best when he said, Brothers, have you found our king? There he is. He's kissing the little children. He's saying that they are like God. There he is at a table with the head of a fisherman lying on his bosom. This is a true type of our God beside the monstrosity of a monarch. Do you want to know what God is like? God is the one who clothes himself with flesh and then takes the little children and says that they're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God is the one who takes the marginal and the outcast and draws them near. God is the one who takes those whose lives, whose lives have been racked by sin and broken by sin, those who have been pushed to the fringes, and he heals them and makes them whole and draws them close. Tenderness is at the heart of the universe, which is why John says, John 1 and verse 18 in the New King James, I love this, that no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Brothers and sisters, think about it. This is talking about the only begotten Son, Jesus, and his Father. Triune God is the heart of reality. And if you could peer into the heart of reality, do you know what you'd see? You see the Son of God with his head resting against his Father's chest in deep tenderness. That is the heart of all things. It's soft, it's supple, it's pliable, it's tender, it's, it's almost indescribably human in how divine it is. Divine tenderness is at the heart of the universe is what I want to say to you tonight. And we are most like God when we walk in that tenderness towards one another. But that's the whole message of the book of Micah. That tenderness had leaked out from among God's people. And what Micah is doing is he's trying to get their attention. Guys, get it back. Where did it go among you? Divine tenderness is at the heart of the universe. And we are most like God when we walk in it towards each other. Whatever else we say about our spirituality and whatever else is happening among us, this is how we know that God is getting his way among us. This is how we know that the kingdom is triumphing among us. Remember, Paul said it best. He said the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, but it's what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He perhaps said it better in Galatians when he said that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Somebody said it over here. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God looks like, and we are most like God when we walk in this way towards one another. And it's one of the things that I think concerns me the most about the cultural moment that we're living in. That it's so absent, all of this. You know, I think about the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And I know that we process this, and we've processed this, and we've processed this. And I know there are people to blame and people have been pointing fingers and I get it, I get it. But that moment to me, this is in complete candor and vulnerability, honesty with you. That moment to me was like an apocalyptic moment where something was unveiled that we needed to see. And I think that what we needed to see was that there's, a, there's an animosity at work in us. There's a hatred, a despising of other people at work in us. There's a fear at work in us. And wherever that fear of other people is, tenderness can't be. <laughs> you know, God doesn't fear us and love us at the same time. He only loves us. That's why he's tender with us. When we're afraid of other people, when we think that they're trying to take something from us, we can't love them. And what we saw on January 6th was we saw this cancerous thing that had been growing in our culture all of a sudden explode upon us. And I'm not here to point fingers and I'm not here to assign blame and I'm not here to try to figure out who did that thing and all of that. It's not, that's not important. What's important is that this is at work in us and it made that possible. And you know what the great irony of that whole thing was? The great irony of that, that, that thing that was so anti-everything that is the heart of God is how many people there were inside that angry mob that were holding up signs that said Jesus saves. 
or holding up crosses in it. While they were calling for the heads of other people, Jesus saves and holding up crosses. It's an irony, isn't it? But you know what the deep and the beautiful irony of it is? Is that the very thing that they were doing is the very thing that Jesus has come to save us all from. (laughs) He's coming to save us from that. And if he has to, he will use that to save us from that. And if you don't understand that, you don't get our God. That what he does is he takes the momentum of our evil. He takes the momentum of our hatred, the momentum of our anger, the momentum of our vitriol, the momentum of our rage. And he goes, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to climb inside of that thing and I'm going to break it from the inside out. But that's what he promised to do in Micah. Oh, this is what you're going to be? Well, I'm climbing inside of this thing, Micah chapter 3 and verse 12, and I'm going to make Jerusalem like a heap of rubble. I am breaking this sucker to pieces in order to get you back for myself. Does Jesus save? You'd better believe it. And he saves us from precisely that thing. And Micah knows it. He knows it in his bones. Listen to Micah, Micah chapter 4. Micah says that after God has done this work, after he's climbed inside the evil of his people and broken it to the ground, in the last days, this is what's going to happen. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And what's going to happen? Everybody coming to it. All the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And what's going to happen now? The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, verse 3, and he will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will what? Come on, guys. Micah says that in the last days, this is what's going to happen. God is so going to have his way on planet Earth that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the chief among the mountains, among the hills, and peoples will stream to it. And they will, he, they will say, teach us your ways that we may walk in your paths. And the immediate impact of them learning the ways of God is what? They will beat their swords into what? Plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit. This, guys, is the vision of the prophets. That everybody's going to sit under their own vine and fig tree, and nobody's going to make them afraid. And then as if to drive the point home, the Lord says, for the Lord Almighty has spoken it. There is a day that is coming in which the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea and everything that is predatory in our world, all cruelty, all meanness, all despising of human life, every place where human life is degraded, that will be broken, it will be driven out, it will be sunk in the depths of hell. So the invitation for the people of God is to begin to walk in that vision now. To make that dream a reality now. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you? You want to know what God wants out of your life and mine? This is what it is. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. And through that, God will get what God wants on planet earth. Can I get an amen? Amen. This, brothers and sisters, is a matter of spiritual discipline. And it's a matter of us yielding our lives to the spirit of the living God on a daily basis. So that that tenderness that exists in the heart of God, that has always existed in the heart of God, and will always exist in the heart of God becomes the normal way that we live our lives with other people. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a manner of being that we cultivate. And do you know who in our community and in my life I think does this better than anybody else? Your pastor, Daniel Grothy. 
this guy is a beast at this, and he's a model for all of us to follow. And I, remember, I was remembering this week, my first day on the job here at New Life back in 2017, I was unpacking my office and getting set up right there in the executive wing up there, and I got a call from Daniel saying, hey, I'm headed to the hospital, and I'd like you to join me on a hospital call. I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to join you. Where are you going to be? He said, we're going to St. Francis down there on Powers. Meet me there in just a little bit. So I zipped over there. And we went to the hospital room of a guy by the name of Kevin Cagle. Kevin had been on our life safety team. Megan, are you here tonight? She's a Friday nighter. I don't see Megan in the room here. Um, he had been on our life safety team, member of our community for a number of years, and was dying of cancer. He was in his final days, it looked like. And he had had he was up and down, lots of treatment stuff that he had done to try to manage his cancer. But it looked like he was coming to the end of the line. And so we went. It was a Thursday afternoon. And we went to St. Francis, and we stood in his hospital room, and we anointed him with oil, and we prayed over him, and prayed the prayer of faith, and we talked with Megan, and Kevin was unresponsive, or barely responsive, really, at that time. And we trusted God, that God would raise him up, and there was all tenderness in that room that day. And we prayed a prayer of blessing over him, and left him, and two days later, Saturday morning, I got a call from Daniel saying, hey, I got the call this morning. It looks like Kevin is in his final minutes and his final hours. Uh, we need to head up to his house. They've moved him to his house. And so we jumped in the car together and we drove up to Monument. And we went to the Cagle household. And they had a group of their friends and family standing around the bed. And Megan was on the bed with Kevin. And I will never forget this as long as I live. I will never forget how quickly and how immediately Daniel jumped up on the bed with Kevin and with Megan. And he slid himself right up next to Kevin and put his head next to Kevin's head and said, Kevin, Kevin, you've done a good job by your family. You've taken good care of Austin and Anna, your kids. You've honored them well. You've set them up for success. You have run the race. You've finished it. You've kept the faith. And you're good, man. And it is okay for you to leave now. And Daniel grabbed the oil again and smeared oil into Kevin's forehead and prayed for him in his ear and kissed his cheek over and over and over again. And we're all standing there in that room and there's not a dry eye. There's not a dry eye in that place. It's Daniel's crying and Megan's crying and we're all crying. And, and we left and 15 minutes later, we got a phone call that Kevin had passed into the next life. And the impression of that moment has never left me, that that is the right way to live. <laughs> That's the right way to live. That what we do is we cherish the humanity of other people, however that humanity comes to us. And I've been a pastor now for 15 years and I've been in the church all of my life. And one of the things that I see over and over again that breaks my heart is the way in which we stop cherishing each other that we let bitterness and rivalry and animosity creep in in our relationships. And I'm telling you, that is the advance of hell on planet Earth. What has to happen for God to get his way on planet Earth is that we start surrendering ourselves to his tenderness again. And so my exhortation to you is just a simple one tonight, brothers and sisters. It's this. God in Christ Jesus has cherished you and will never stop cherishing you. Would you please cherish one another? Would you stand with me tonight? Let me pray over you. Would you help us, oh God? Family, would you just lift your hands up to the Lord and begin to receive his spirit in a fresh way? This is what his spirit is doing among us. It's softening the hearts of husbands towards their wives and wives towards their husbands, okay? This is what his spirit is doing among us. It's not about those people out there and all their anger. It's about the way in which we've failed to cherish our children rightly. And the way that children, we've failed to cherish our parents rightly. And the way that we've failed to cherish each other as friends and in the family of God rightly. And the ways in which we've stopped looking out for the most vulnerable among us, it's about us. And so we're asking tonight, spirit of the living God, we are asking that you would get a hold of us in a fresh way. Uh, we know we know because the scripture says that this is so, that what you do in us, Holy Spirit, is that you work the very life of Christ into us. The Christ who took the child and put him in the midst and said that this, you have to change and become like this in order to enter the kingdom. You 
are doing that among us, Spirit of the living God. And so we ask you tonight that you would do that in us in a fresh way. And we see the anger and the hatred and all that stuff that's happening in the world. But what we're saying tonight is that first, here and now, let your kingdom come to us. Let your will be done among us, on earth, among us in our hearts, just like it's done in heaven, just like it has always been done in your heart and will always be done in your heart. Let that take place among us. Make manifest your life among us. We pray and conquer the world's anger. We pray through the love of Christ made manifest in the people of God. We grant that we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, let's respond in worship tonight. God, we thank you for the way that you love us. Sing his praise together. In the darkness we were waiting with our hope and with our light. Till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin gave the word from a throne of endless glory.
in our hands, in our mouths, getting into our lives, that God would rather die, let the train crush him, than be without us. And so I invite you, if you're at home, if you're in the room, our Lord Jesus, on the night, he was handed over to suffering and death. He took the bread. Having given thanks, he broke the bread. And he gave it to his disciples. He gives it to you this evening. And he says, take, eat. This is my body. And it's always for you. I'm always for you. Remember that. Remember me. I'm always for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may receive the bread. Likewise, when supper was over, he took the cup. Having given thanks, he shared that cup with his disciples. He's here in this place right now among us. And he's sharing it with you. And he says, this is my blood. I'm happy to give it for you. I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to cleanse you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. I want you to remember that I'm for you. I want you to remember me. You may receive the cup. And so right now, together as your family, Jesus, we remember you. Not just back then, but right now in this place that you are forever for us. And we ask that you would infuse our veins. Uh, may the, your blood be coursing through us. Your tenderness, your compassion, your goodness, may it be coursing through us and into our marriages, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our work. Get your life into us. We do not want to live the life of hell. We want to live in sync with the heartbeat of the tenderness of, of the world, of the universe. And so beat that heart in our chest, we ask and we pray. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Hallelujah. It's a great gift to be able to stand up here and look out and watch you worship, watch you praise the name of Jesus. And so as you go this evening, may you know that he is tender towards you in every part of your life. He is working for your Good. If you need to pray with someone, we'll have a prayer team up here that would love to see your face, know your name, hear your story, and pray for you. Connect at the, at the tables out there, especially if you'd like to serve our children. And as you go, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May you see his beaming pride over you, his tears of joy when you call on his name. May he turn his bright smiling countenance upon you and grant you peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Be blessed, my friends.